Welcome to the RCAP USA Roundup, a podcast where we have real conversations affecting both cattle producers and beef consumers. We're your hosts, Jaden Moreland and Karina Jones. With that, let's get to today's episode. Why are we losing American ranchers? What's new with MCOOL? Why didn't RCAP endorse the compromise bill? Why is RCAP supporting a bill by Senator Cory Booker? We answer all these and more on this week's episode of the RCAP USA Roundup. Welcome, welcome. Karina and I are so honored to be sitting on here with our guests for this episode, our boss and fearless cattle industry leader, CEO of RCAP USA, Bill Bullard. We are so excited to have him on here to share his wisdom and knowledge of the cattle industry with y'all. It's no secret. If you've been paying attention, there has been no shortage of things happening in the industry, and there's just a lot going on. Between bill numbers and compromises and endorsements, it just can get overwhelming and confusing with all this information. So we wanted to have Bill on here today to break down and further explain and clarify some of those things. So with that being said, Bill, let's start with a quick introduction. Where are you from and what is your background in ranching? During high school, I spent my um, years up with my shirttail relative up in southeastern North Dakota on a farm ranch operation. And then after high school, I rented a farming and ranching operation and then later purchased one. So I was owner operator of a cow calf operation up in Northwestern South Dakota, up through the mid eighties. And then uh, went back to college late in life, uh, eventually ended up as the executive director of the South Dakota Public Utilities Commission. And from there, I went uh, directly to RCAF. So let's kind of rewind. RCAF has been around for a while. So do you want to just give us like kind of a brief history of RCAF and why it was started and why you were attracted to RCAF? Well, it was in the mid nineties. Uh, in fact, it was 1996 that the industry's exclusive voice, in other words, the voice that represented the interests of independent cattle producers was the National Cattlemen's Association. And in 1996, it merged with the Beef Industry Council and became the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. So from that point forward, no longer did the independent cattle producer have an exclusive voice in Washington, D.C. or anywhere else that policy decisions are made. And that was the uh, impetus for the formation of RCAP. It was a recognition that cattle producers lost their exclusive voice uh, the industry or the organization that once represented them was now also representing the beef packing industry. And uh, there was a huge void that had to be filled. And so that's uh, why our camp was formed in 1999. And uh, after it had been formed, the board had done a nationwide search for a chief executive officer. I was employed at the South Dakota Public Utilities Commission and the South Dakota Capitol at the time simply received a phone call out of the blue by a headhunter asking uh, if I would be interested in being the CEO of a relatively new but fast growing cattle association. And I told him, you have caught my attention. And soon thereafter, uh, I began work with RCAP back in, in 2001. RCAP is one of those organizations I think that is so cool because it's been around for a while. And we have like stood our ground on these issues that we're still fighting for all these years. And so as our calf keeps fighting these battles, one thing 
is evident in this time um, that we are not on a good path in the cattle industry and we're losing a lot of producers who just simply can't hold on anymore. So Bill, why are we losing American ranchers? Well, primarily because the industry itself was not vigilant and did not preserve and protect competition within its industry. And as a result, we went through what was uh, referred to as merger mania in the 1980s. We had unprecedented levels of concentration uh, in the cattle industry when that, during that decade. And so with that concentration, you have considerable market power that, is, uh, that emanates from the highly concentrated beef packers and they have figured out new cattle procurement tools that would maximize their leverage over the marketplace and essentially uh, eliminate the leverage that independent producers would have. So as a result of that concentration, there's a huge disparity in market power between the highly concentrated meat packers and the widely disaggregated cattle producers that number somewhere around three quarters of a million. And so that was the first problem. That's what uh, essentially purged competition from the industry were these new cattle procurement tools that allowed the packers to have cattle committed to them without ever having to negotiate a price. And then basing that price on the ultra thin cash market, that was easy to manipulate. All they had to do was avoid the cash market thus lower the price of cattle in the cash market. And because that price uh, was linked directly to all of these formula and forward type contracts, it essentially reduced the value of all cattle that the packers purchased. And after that concentration uh, occurred and reached its peak, where now it's four packers controlling 85% of the fed cattle market, uh, we soon embarked upon this uh, globalization ideal. And what globalization was, was the ability for the meat packers to essentially source beef and cattle from anywhere around the world and bring it to the United States to displace the production of United States cattle producers. And it was this high level of concentration that gave uh, significant power to the meat packers that are multinational in scope. And so they benefited greatly from being able to bring in undifferentiated and cheaper product as a direct substitute for what is produced here in the United States. And that has contributed greatly to not just the contraction of our industry, but the elimination of opportunities for new entrants to enter our industry because uh, for example, where we have a reduced number of cattle in our cattle herd now, uh, even with that, it doesn't provide opportunities for entrants to enter because we're importing so many live cattle from both Canada and Mexico, as well as large volumes of beef from over 20 different countries. And so that's why America is losing its ranches is because we failed completely to preserve and protect competition in our industry. Our industry was founded on competition. It is absolutely dependent on competition, but today competition has been purged from virtually every segment of the live cattle supply chain. So that kind of brings us into our main issues that we wanted to cover today. 
So I think let's start with MCOOL. So mandatory country of origin labeling. That has been such a hot topic for quite a few years now. And we did our episode previous to this, really diving into MCOOL. But we just wanted to kind of touch back over it because there's been some new co-sponsors and all that stuff. So Bill, just kind of briefly explain to us what is this mandatory country of origin bill that is in the Senate right now? So the United States had mandatory country of origin labeling for fresh fruits and vegetables, chicken, lamb, goat meat, pork, and beef, um, macadamia nuts, peanuts, uh, fish and shellfish. So we've had a, have a long history of giving consumers information as to the origins of the food they purchase for themselves and their families. But Canada and Mexico ob objected vehemently to our country of origin labeling law and successfully um, argued before the World Trade Organization that our law was discriminating against their imports of live cattle. And so as a result, the World Trade Organization ruled in favor, and it was no surprise, uh, ruled in favor of Canada and Mexico. The World Trade Organization does not want country of origin labeling. In fact, they have their own logo. It's made in the world. Uh, they do not want products differentiated based on their, their origin. And so the ruling uh, was issued and Congress immediately took steps to repeal country of origin labeling as it applies only to beef and pork. So in other words, all of these other food commodities continue to be labeled. Now beef and pork are the outliers. Well, the pork industry, as everyone knows, is, is not only highly concentrated, it's vertically integrated. We've wiped out um, hundreds of thousands of pork producers in the last 40 years, and now it's dominated by corporate interests. And they have no interest in country of origin labeling. And so uh, we have been working with members of Congress trying to reintroduce a bill that would restore mandatory country of origin labeling for our industry, the beef industry. And on September 13th of 2021, uh, Senators John Thune, Republican from South Dakota, and Senator John Tester, a Democrat from uh, Montana, and Republican, the other Republican Senator in South Dakota, Mike Rounds, uh, and Cory Booker, a Democratic Senator from New Jersey, joined in introducing the mandatory country of origin labeling beef bill. And since that time, we've been put together, helped put together, uh, a loose-knit national coalition consisting of uh, manufacturers, consumers, uh, workers, uh, and many other interests in order to promote and further uh, the mandatory country of origin labeling law. And it's, uh, it's Senate Bill 2716. Uh, it essentially restores country of origin labeling for beef, but it also recognizes that we need to uh, address this lingering World Trade Organization ruling. So the law specifies, or excuse me, the legislation specifies that our U.S. Trade Ambassador and U.S. Secretary of Agriculture uh, would have a year during which to determine a means of implementing the new country of origin labeling law for beef uh, in, a matter, in a manner that is compliant with WTO rules. And so that was an important step because uh, many in Congress continue to be concerned about this very old ruling now uh, against our country of origin labeling law. And uh, yet the, the, the importance of affording consumers the ability to choose from where they want their food produced is an overwhelming and a strong driving force 
uh, causing Congress to support this. So we are adding um, members of the US Senate onto, onto this bill as co-sponsors, and we hope to get it enacted as quickly as possible. So if we're gonna be positive, so when MCOOL gets reinstated, what will our industry look like and how is it gonna affect consumers as well as how is it gonna affect producers? So if we look historically, we see that when mandatory country of origin labeling for beef was partially implemented in 2009, we saw our domestic cattle prices uh, were increasing at the time. And then when country of origin labeling for beef was fully implemented in 2013, and I say fully implemented because no longer could the meat packers slap a label on a beef product that said product of the United States, Canada, and Mexico. That's what happened between 2009 and 2013. 2013, the requirement was that all uh, retail beef had to be labeled as to where the animal was born, raised, and slaughtered. And that was the first time in history that U.S. consumers could accurately distinguish the exclusive USA product. It was a product born, raised, and harvested in the United States of America. And coinciding with the, that implementation, the full country of origin labeling, we saw domestic cattle prices skyrocket. They reached uh, the highest nominal levels in history soon after that. And then uh, immediately after 2015, when the U.S. House of Representatives overwhelmingly voted to repeal COOL, everyone knew that COOL was on the way out. And uh, by 2000, late 2015, the U.S. Department of Agriculture announced that it would no longer even enforce the law. And soon thereafter, the law was completely repealed. And since 2015, every rancher knows what happened to cattle prices. They collapsed further and faster than any time in history. They tried to recover in 2017. And then since that time, we've seen cattle prices stair-stepping downward. Uh, we've had rallies uh, during that period, but uh, the rallies are getting further uh, apart and the troughs are lasting longer, meaning cattle prices have been depressed for longer. And while this is, was happening from 2017 to present, as cattle prices were ratcheting downward, we saw retail beef prices uh, reaching unprecedented levels. They, can, they continued to skyrocket. So that was the first time in history that we saw an obvious inverse relationship between retail beef prices and domestic cattle prices. In other words, the two prices were moving in opposite directions. And so we have to fix that. And obviously what held uh, the two prices together up throughout history until this time was the invisible hand of competition and having purged competition from our industries we talked about before, uh, there's no longer the glue necessary to hold retail prices with cattle prices. And so to fix that, we have to both restore competition for cattle, but very importantly, we have to restore competition for beef. We have to restore competition for beef at the grocery store because we need to empower consumers to choose where they want the beef they purchase uh, to be produced. And when they make that choice, and every time that a US consumer chooses a product that is exclusively born, raised, and harvested in the United States, that sends a demand signal to the packer for an animal that is exclusively born and raised in the United States. And there's only one place in the world that the packer can get that. And that's right here in the United States of America. 
So country of origin labeling is absolutely essential to ignite competition at the grocery store consumer level. And that's where in a competitive marketplace, competition is supposed to originate. It originates from consumer choices. Our industry has not been able to function properly because consumers have no choice. Their choice is whatever the packers unilaterally decide uh, to place on the grocery store shelves for them. And so that's why country of origin labeling is important. It restores competition for beef at the grocery store level and empowers consumers to choose if they want to purchase the best beef in the world produced under the best of conditions. Of course, that's USA beef, or if they would prefer to, to purchase a cheaper product from Costa Rica, Nicaragua, Australia, New Zealand, Mexico, Canada, wherever, any one of the 20 countries we import from. So that's the value. Um, it is what is absolutely essential if we are to restore competition to the entire cattle and beef supply chain, we must start with the consumer and we must give that consumer information to be able to exercise choices uh, when they purchase the protein they need for their family. Speaking of activating the consumer, I think when consumers experienced empty grocery store shelves during the COVID-19 crisis, suddenly this nation became more aware of just how fragile our food supply chain is, especially in the protein sector of their grocery store. This also seemed to allow us to finally get Washington's attention like the cattle industry has never gotten before. And so this has led us to a place right now that's both really exciting, but kind of maybe gives um, Washington too many choices to think about where we have multiple competition bills sitting in committees and we're not getting anything moved through. It's no secret that RCAF has been a champion for Senate Bill 949, the 5014 spot market bill, but recently there was what they called a compromise bill introduced. Bill, would you please tell us about the differences between the compromise bill that was introduced and uh, 5014, what we have always been in favor of? Sure. So 5014 was a statutory requirement. In other words, Congress exercised their constitutional duty uh, to pass laws, and they, uh, 5014 was one such law that would direct the meatpackers to purchase at least 50% of their cattle each week for each of their plants uh, in the competitive marketplace. So it it was nationwide. It was wherever the uh, a meat packer that owned more than one plant resided, that plant would be required to purchase at least 50% of the cattle in the, in the cash market. That would immediately uh, ignite competition for cattle. And we thought that that was a triage measure. That and country of origin labeling were the two steps necessary to immediately begin reinserting competition into the uh, live cattle and beef supply chain. And so the, uh, the alternative bill that was introduced was introduced by Deb Fisher. And it was a bill that, uh, in which Congress did not exercise its constitutional duty to enact laws. Instead, it delegated the authority to the US Department of Agriculture to decide uh, two years from now or longer, 
what level the Packers should potentially uh, be required to purchase in the cash market. And they decided that they would divide that up in regions, essentially recognizing that in the South, uh, the states of Oklahoma, Texas, New Mexico, for example, uh, the cash market there is uh, extremely low. And, it, and that is the region that probably has done the most harm to the marketplace itself. And interestingly, the Deb Fisher bill actually re rewards those in the South who have caused the most damage by saying that they really don't need to purchase as much cattle in the cash market as uh, states in Nebraska and Iowa and Minnesota, for example, do. And so we did not like, did not support the Deb Fisher bill, but strongly supported the uh, Grassley, what became known as the Grassley Tester 5014 bill. Well, unfortunately, the U.S. Senate Ag Committee leadership chose not to bring the bill up for a vote and, in fact, uh, encouraged uh, Senator Grassley and Senator Fisher to work out a compromise so that there would not be, um, essentially, there wouldn't be a choice among the members of the Senate Ag Committee to eventually uh, vote on the measure and let it go to the floor of the Senate for a full vote. And so the compromise uh, negotiations lasted for several weeks. And uh, the outcome was such that it wasn't a compromise at all. Um, what happened was they discarded the Grassley bill. They kept the Fisher bill. And the outcome of the Fisher bill is that cattle producers who realize we need some immediate um, assistance, we need some immediate competitive forces reintroduced in the marketplace, it isn't gonna happen for up to two years. And then after it happens, the USDA is actually directed to benchmark whatever volume levels they choose to set for each of the various regions on the ultra low competitive cash market levels we've had for the past 18 months. So essentially what this compromise bill does is it locks in uh, the very market structure that has essentially destroyed the US cattle market. And so it's a non-starter. It, it does nothing to restore competition to the marketplace. Um, it's a huge disappointment. The 5014 bill again would have required, it would have caused some immediate relief. And when I say relief, I mean, it would have caused the immediate restoration of competition and it is the com competitive forces that offer the relief to the cattle producer because that is where the cattle or that it's under the competitive market forces are how, um, how the market establishes a competitive value for cattle. Our RCAF board and staff spent a considerable amount of time combing through this compromise bill giving feedback to the senators where we were finding the loopholes already in this. Let's talk about some of that conversation that, that what we saw with the bill and the issues at hand. For one, let's start with just the whole concept of regionalization. Does establishing regionalization now set a dangerous precedence for future lawmaking? Well, it, it certainly does, because uh, we have a uh, cattle futures market, for example, and you go to see what the value, value of cattle uh, would be on a given time, at a given time. And that is a national price uh, that's uh, posted on the cattle futures market. And of course, 
the cattle futures market is informed by the cash market and oftentimes for future purposes, uh, the futures mark, the cash market is informed by the cattle futures price. So there's a close relationship between those two prices. So to have one at a national level and all the rest on regional levels um, creates a, a confusion in the marketplace that need not exist. And that confusion would actually uh, and potentially uh, empower packers to figure out how to game a system, game a system in which their obligations in one part of the country uh, is very different than it is in another part. And of course, uh, when you have, as we talked about before, the Southern states uh, being rewarded for having um, eliminated more of their cash market than any other region, you then have the regions that have the more the robust volume of cash cattle, like Nebraska, like Iowa, Minnesota. They're the regions that are actually setting the national price. So the price discovery is really occurring in the states that have uh, sufficient volume in the cash market to establish competitive price for value. So it's it's inequitable. Uh, it, it creates confusion uh, in the industry. And it simply makes no sense because cattle producers throughout the United States are all suffering equally from this broken marketplace. And to try to piecemeal um, the market together as the, the compromise bill does simply makes no sense for the industry. When we talk about compounding that confusion, we know that this cattle, the cattle industry, the cattle market, it's fluid from region to region. There are cattle that are being fed in Western Nebraska that are killed in Colorado. There's cattle back and forth from the Iowa Nebraska border. And so our board just could not see how this would be a system, legalizing a system where, where cattle are crossing regional lines. Another issue that um, you and the board found with this bill in terms of regionalization was the fact that a number of big four packing plants are located outside of the USDA reporting regions. So talk to us about what this bill would do or not do for say the JBS plant in Hiram, Utah or the Tyson plant in Pasco, Washington. Well, that's right. So the, the compromise bill only imposes um, a requirement on the packers that actually physically reside within the five area region. So that means that of the 24 meat packing plants owned by the four largest packers, nine of them are outside the five area region and would not be subject to any requirements uh, to purchase cattle in the cash market. That's a huge problem. If you look at JBS, for example, the world's largest beef packer, uh, the majority of its plants are outside the five area region. Uh, that's a huge percentage. And we tried to calculate what the actual um, daily capacity of those plants were outside. And we estimated it to be somewhere around 17,000 head per day. So that's uh, three times what the volume at the Holcomb, Kansas Tyson plant was when the disruption occurred there that had a huge negative impact on the marketplace. So now you've got three times that residing outside the area of reform because those nine plants would not be reformed. And, and that simply is, is a, a hole too big to ignore. 
And that also led our directors to the conversation that it appeared that it could incentivize the big four packers to build or expand outside of the reporting region. So outside of where most cattle are fed. Right, if you look at the plant in Illinois, for example, just over the border from Iowa, huge incentive uh, to, um, if they're going to do any upgrades of these antiquated plants, they're likely going to choose to upgrade outside of the region where um, or requirements are imposed on them. So one thing that this compromise bill did just a little bit differently in taking the original Fisher bill a little bit further was then tethering the highest region to the lowest region. Talk about the, the whole new 300% clause that they put right. in the compromise bill. So, you know, that, that sends uh, the red flag and says, obviously the negotiators were heavily influenced by the packing industry itself because uh, of that requirement you just described, that uh, the, the region where the highest level of cash volume would be required uh, could not be more than 300% greater than the volume required in the lowest volume regions. So just use an example. So if the Texas, Oklahoma, New Mexico region had um, about 10% volume in the cash market, and that's where USDA decided to set it because they could use the 18 month average, I think it's actually about 13%. Uh, and you've got uh, Iowa up around 54% presently, you would actually ratchet down the requirements for um, Iowa because it couldn't be any more than three times what the Texas, New Mexico, Oklahoma region was. Uh, that makes no sense whatsoever, unless of course you're on the other side of the cattle supply chain, uh, then it makes perfect sense. And I think the inclusion of that provision uh, should be a signal to every cattle producer that their interests were absent from the negotiating table. So after we, we came through that parsing of this bill process, it was really clear from our board, the messaging was still that 5014 was the competition bill, the only competition option that would rise the tide nationwide. And so let's morph into where we are today. We've now had another bill introduced by Senator Booker, who interestingly enough, co was a co-sponsor on 5014 and on the American Beef Labeling Act. So definitely a senator, a senator that continues to stay very hooked in to our grassroots voice. Let's talk about the bill he is introducing. Right. So uh, we need to back up about two years, and that's when Senator Booker's, Booker's office contacted us and asked us uh, to help write um, uh, cattle reform provisions that would genuinely restore opportunities for independent cattle producers to be successful in our industry. So we spent several months working uh, with Senator Booker's office in drafting uh, what we thought to be uh, the comprehensive reform package necessary uh, to put our industry back on the right course. And Senator Booker incorporated that in a bill that he introduced that we ultimately did not support. Uh, that bill uh, had some restrictions on the size of feedlots. Uh, we have many cattle feeders whose 
sizes are larger than what uh, the bill would have mandated. And so we did not support that. And uh, the bill somewhat languished. And we decided that we would try to take pieces from that bill and chop it around to members of Congress and see you know, what we could get done. Well, that's exactly where the 5014 bill came from. And Senators uh, Grassley and Tester agreed to introduce that. And it's also where the mandatory country of origin labeling came from. So we got two of those pieces out of that. Well, as we've been moving uh, and seeing that uh, our efforts are, have been uh, either killed or severely watered down, and in the case of 5014, it was killed, uh, Senator Booker is now reintroducing a bill and he's taken our cattle reform package and included it in a measure that addresses uh, the employment conditions in these large packing plants. You know, that is really what triggered the um, Packers and Stockyards Act back 100 years ago. It was the, uh, the terrible conditions that were described in the book, The Jungle, that really precipitated uh, major reforms. And so we now have in this uh, bill that uh, much of which focuses on uh, how employees are treated in packing plants, uh, it now has an entire section of our cattle market reforms. And here's why that's significant. It's because, you know, we found that most of the meaningful reforms that we pursued, including 5014, is either killed or severely watered down by cattle state members of Congress. Uh, and the reason that happens, of course, is because there are factions within our own industry that vehemently oppose any efforts to uh, impart reforms on the industry. And so the Booker bill represents a departure from a strategy that simply has not worked. And, and the departure is this, Senator Booker is not from a cattle state, he's from an urban state. Kittle, uh, Senator Booker has not been involved in cattle policy issues until recently, uh, where he has shown a direct interest in, in reforming the broken marketplace. And um, he has a constituency and because of the inclusion of the worker protection provisions in the bill, he has a base of support that goes far beyond the US cattle industry. And that's what we've always lacked, is a sufficient base with which to move Congress. Well, the Senator Booker bill now contains a much broader base because of the sections, again, that deal with workers uh, and because uh, it's, not, it's not originating in the cattle states where we have uh, you know, met resistance for any reforms. So this Booker bill now represents the greatest promise of achieving genuine market reforms for our cattle industry. And the package that is included in that bill is a package that we helped write and we spent months writing and we believe that the provisions in that bill will do more than anything else uh, to not just reverse the downward trajectory of our industry in terms of loss of cattle producers, decline of our cattle herd, loss of feedlots. It will not only reverse that, it's gonna provide opportunities uh, for both current and aspiring ranchers uh, to you know, operate cattle oper successful cattle operations in the United States and compete head to head 
with uh, producers in foreign countries, something that our industry has not been able to do for 40 years. You know, is uh, um, cattle producers have, the conversation has really kicked up at the grassroots level this last two years. One thing I have heard over and over from cattle producers is we have to get the consumer involved. We have to get the consumer involved. Well, now with this bill, I see consumer engagement and support behind this bill like we've really never seen before behind a cattle industry reform bill. And so there is a list of around, I would say, 100 organizations. And it's pretty impressive, the groups that um, are endorsing this bill. And so now we have a vehicle that consumer groups are very excited about. And so now it's time for us to um, engage the cattle producer groups to come in behind because they've said it all along, the consumer is more powerful than our 1% of, of the community population. And so there seems to be a, a really wide array of support behind this bill. And That's it's right. also been introduced in the house. That's right. And importantly, um, there is a faction within the U.S. cattle industry that has held reforms at bay, and they will continue to do so. So not only are we dealing with the fact that there's just 1% up against all these consumers, we're dealing with a 1% that's split, uh, at least down the middle. And so we must overcome that to be successful. And that's why it is so vitally important to take our reform package and put it in a bill uh, that, as you indicated, consumers would widely support as and many other interest groups across America. People that, um, I've looked at that list. I don't recognize most of the organizations on that list, never heard of them before, but we need them. And we need many, many more of them. And the Booker bill holds the promise to do that to build a sufficient base of support to overcome the opposition within our ranks and the opposition originating from many cattle state senators. The name of that bill is the Protecting America's Meatpacking Workers Act of 2021. And so to learn more about that bill, stay tuned into the RCAF USA website and social media platforms because we will be um, continuing to keep our audience updated about that bill. And we will definitely need um, everybody to be calling their senators and their congressmen to um, urge support and co-sponsorship of that bill. Okay, so as we've got Washington's attention, a lot stirring, a lot going on, where do you think our industry is headed, Bill, if we can achieve these reforms or if we just, you know, let this moment in our industry pass us by and we don't finish the job? Right. So um, we can, we recognize um, trends in our industry. Uh, and I mentioned this already, the, the trend is we're losing uh, beef cattle operations. And we, we've lost over half a million of them in the last four decades. Uh, we're losing the size of our mother cow herd. And in fact, displacing that loss of mother cows with imported cattle from Canada and Mexico. And we're losing feedlots at an alarming rate. Uh, we've lost 75% of them just in the last 25 years. And so what that means is we are 
at an alarming rate, shrinking the competitive infrastructure of our industry. We're dismantling it. And once it's dismantled, um, we need only look at our hog industry uh, partners and, and see what that means. It means game over. It means you don't have a, a, a place to market cattle uh, at a local auction yard. You don't have the ability uh, to seek a, uh, a sale through a cash market. If you wanna participate, you need to have a marketing or production contract with the Packers. So that is the trajectory we're on. We are fast catching up with the already vertically integrated hog industry that has eliminated opportunities for uh, the, the hundreds of thousands of hog producers that have been forced out of the industry. And so um, if we do not take uh, drastic measures, if we don't stop the current trajectory, which is going to be a, a monumental challenge, and then uh, take steps to restore in the industry what built the industry in the first place. And that's the competitive market forces at every juncture along the live cattle and beef supply chain. Um, if we do that, we can salvage this industry and we can build this industry. And by doing so, we're the largest uh, agricultural sector in the United States the live cattle industry. If we build and strengthen the US live cattle industry, we will build and strengthen rural communities all across America. We will revitalize uh, many of these communities that, have, that are blowing away, hollowing out. And so we have no choice. We must restore competition to the cattle industry. Uh, we must reverse this negative trajectory we've been on for 40 years. We can do it and we will do it. And we will do it by gaining the support of the consumers, as you talked about earlier, as well as many other economic interests in the United States. That's workers, that's manufacturers, that's environmental concerns. Uh, that's people who want to restore for America uh, the most efficient uh, food production system the world has ever known. And that was America's family farm system of agriculture. And unfortunately, this nation, our nation, has lost sight of the importance of that type of a food system. We must return to it. Okay, one last question to wrap us up for today. Bill, what is your favorite cut of beef and how do you like it prepared? Bone-in ribeye and medium rare. I mean, you can't go wrong with the ribeye. That has been the most popular answer every time we ask that question for good reason. So, Bill, it has been a pleasure getting to have you on here. And thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. As I said in the beginning, there is a lot going on in the cattle industry. And I always admire how Bill researches and educates himself on every single issue that affects our U.S. cattle industry. Blackie said, we have to do something. We have to reverse the trajectory of our industry or else we're gonna to continue to see it dwindle and we're not gonna have an industry left to fight for. For information on these bills and issues we discussed on today's episode, please visit our website, www.r-calfusa.com and call your congressman. Tell them to pass these bills and co-sponsor them. The MCOOL bill is S2716, the American Beef Labeling Act, and 5014 is S949, the Cattle Market Protection Bill. Senator Booker's new bill does not have a bill number assigned to it just yet, but it's titled 
the Protecting America's Meatpacking Workers Act. This bill was also introduced in the House by Representative Ro Khanna. I encourage you to read through these bills. Make a decision and stance on them for yourself. Sometimes what's inside the bill is way more important than the name that introduced it. As always, we would love for you to follow along on our social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, YouTube, at RCAFUSA. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the RCAFUSA Roundup. To learn more about RCAFUSA, visit our website, www.r-cafusa.com. 